Hello, everyone. Before I explain any further, I need to proffer a sincere apology. In the previous episode, I made a grievous error which many fans of the show were right to point out. Some of you more politely than others. As much as it pains me to, I'll admit it. I'm a big stupid idiot. And I completely missed a reference Nick Fury made in the car to Captain America just before they saw Bucky and Gale. And possibly the second most apt ultimate celebrity sighting, he did, in fact, mention Robert Downey Jr. And I missed it. I, your host who has spent a truly unforgivable amount of time on this podcast, missed it. So that brings our count up to a total of six instead of five. On bended knee, I beg your mercy. But hey, that's a joke, and it doesn't actually matter. In all seriousness, I did accidentally misgender Grant Morrison, who identifies as non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. For that, I really do sincerely apologize. The episode has been fixed and re-uploaded. Thank you for your patience and your understanding. I promise I'm trying my best, and I'm more than happy to correct mistakes like that. Thank you. The oppressed people of Afghanistan will know the generosity of America and her allies as we strike military targets. We were told going into Fallujah, into the, the combat area, that every single person that was walking, talking, breathing was an enemy combatant. When it comes to the Russians, to the Germans, the French, the Chinese, why were your diplomatic efforts unable to reach the point of persuading them to join us in what you would argue from the heart, it seems to me, is a genuinely noble cause of liberation? At Umkazer, U.S. Marines briefly raised the stars and stripes after taking over the Newport. The flag was later lowered out of respect for local residents. Is it true that you had orders to shoot even children of 10 years old? Uh, by the time Fallujah rolled around, it was any, any male with, a, with an AK-47 or a gun or whatever was a, a military target. On the president's order, coalition forces began the ground war to disarm Iraq and liberate the Iraqi people uh, yesterday. Words are living fossils. The poet pieces the wild beast together. Prose masquerading in the typography of poetry is not poetry. Poetry is not a product. It is itself an elementary particle. Poetry is a guillotine for accepted ideas. You know, I haven't spent any time on this podcast describing myself. My name is Nat. I'm 33 years old, and I love superhero comics and economic systems that provide for people and don't destroy the planet, and I can't grow a beard. I've got curly brown hair that flops over to the right on top and is buzzed with a number two trimmer attachment on the sides. I have a small silver hoop earring in my left ear that my friends mock me quite mercilessly for, and a Superman tattoo on my left leg. My go-to joke on the rare occasions that I have to talk about these things is that it's fitting that the left side of my body presents as a lot more left-wing than my right side. But of course, that's just a joke. Superficial ornamentation or aesthetic choices are merely that. Superficial. They don't indicate political leanings any more than even more deeply ingrained aspects of the self, like one's gender identity, one's sexual preference, or even one's accent do. There are two aspects of this shallow reading to consider, if we're to move beyond it into a more accurate analysis. And both of them, like so many other things in this world, center on class. It cannot be stressed enough 
that one's class is defined by one's relation to production, i.e. one's labor. You do want to work, don't you? Well, not if I can possibly escape it. Let's say that, in some bizarre and nigh-unthinkable alternate universe, this podcast ends up making me incredibly famous. And then let's imagine a fan were to approach me and get me to sign their shredded copy of The Ultimate's trade paperback collection. And then, I don't know, their heart suddenly gives out from unbearable excitement and they die instantly. In their honor, I sell the book I signed on eBay for $1,000. That $1,000, however inflated, would still have been earned through working class, or to use the more precise term, proletarian, labor because I did it myself. Thus, it's not profit, it's a wage. If, however, I were to start paying people to make and distribute CDs of the podcast, and I paid them $20 per CD while selling each one for $20 and one cent, that one cent I pocket each time would not have come from my own labor. It would have come from theirs. Thus, that one cent is profit, making it far more evil and exploitative than the thousand dollars I just made because some doofus appreciated my work enough to justify spending that kind of money on a piece of memorabilia. Hey, also, don't forget to sign up for the Collective Action Comics Patreon. How does this relate to my tattoo, my earring, and my floppy hair? What someone looks like is a dubious indicator at best of their relation to labor. One only has to scroll through Instagram once to see how many tatted up tech or nonprofit executives there are. These people very likely haven't worked a day in their lives. Conversely, it's not exactly a riddle to piece together that lots of laborers who would love to have tattoos and piercings are simply too underpaid or overworked to get them. Further, if we were to consider simply the culture war narrative that so many corporate news outlets would like to reduce the struggle to, I'm sure you yourself know someone without pink hair and a Prince Albert who holds no ill will against people of color or the LGBT plus community, and likely because they themselves are part of those communities. On the flip side, remember that there have been plenty of people with tattoos and piercings who, historically, haven't had such great opinions on people who don't look like they do. The whole argument is nonsense, but I'm going to keep using the joke because it's funny. Enter Mark Miller. Considering the stereotype my own joke plays into, it's hardly a surprise that Miller, with his surface-level understanding of politics that we've explored so far, would choose Thor, God of Thunder, to be the, quote, left-winger of the group. The one who, apparently, refuses to play ball with George Bush's new vision for the world. He's got long blonde hair and a demeanor that just screams iconoclast. The impression this Thor radiates is one of the ideal anti-authoritarian. Indeed, the Thor of the Ultimates even adds to his artifice of anti-imperialism with rhetoric to match his presentation. In fact, this son of the king of the gods uses language that would give even me pause. However, one of the most important aspects of the entire medium of comic books is that it is a distillation of the cliché that actions speak louder than words. And let me tell you, these words will eventually seem real quiet. What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future is going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's on it forever. Superman will go as far as I'm concerned, though. They saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with McIntyre or any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery. And we got paid page rate. These days, most people know the Marvel character of Thor from what else? The Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
That version of the character is indeed the classic Thor from myths and legends. He's the god of thunder and prince of Asgard, the son of Odin, king of all gods. This is pretty different from Marvel's original Thor, which itself was radically different from the Thor myth in some understandable and other less expected ways. For instance, the original Marvel Thor had a secret identity. For a more extreme instance, the original mythological Thor was a ginger. Although there had been comic book appearances earlier, Thor's official debut into the Marvel canon was in 1962's Journey into Mystery number 83. He's credited as being created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. And though there are conflicting accounts, I'm going to assume that most of this work for Thor was done by Kirby and Lieber. The Thor story in this anthology isn't nearly as politically questionable as Ant-Man's origin stories from the last episode. But there's a pretty great moment in it when the invading rockmen from Saturn respond to some scrambled NATO fighter jets by showing them a big fake dragon in the sky and the NATO pilots immediately bail with parachutes. In the story, an old fisherman in Norway describes to his peers some malevolent alien vanguard he's just seen land on Earth. And the only one who believes him is a frail doctor visiting from the United States one Dr. Donald Blake. His heart of gold compels him to investigate these outlandish claims, and he runs afoul of the invaders, who, if the timeline is to be believed, apparently just stood around the fjord with their thumbs up their rocky asses for like 10 hours. They chase him off a cliff, whereupon he loses the cane he relies on and has to clamber into a convenient cave nearby. A super convenient cave. Inside, he finds a gnarled walking stick that turns into the magical hammer Mjolnir when he bashes it in frustration against his stone surroundings. This transforms him into the mighty Thor. And after some patience testing exposition of his new powers, we learn he now has super strength, can control certain weather patterns, and defying basic Newtonian principles, can throw his hammer so hard that it pulls him with it, thus granting him a facsimile of flight. Adding some insult to injury that I very much appreciate, Thor basically shames the NATO pilots I mentioned earlier by single-handedly scaring the entire alien invasion force away from Earth. I'm sorry that our visit below had to be terminated so dramatically. Then the NATO troops run up to where he was standing and instantly assume that the pale American leaning on his walking stick in the exact same spot, could have had nothing to do with it, and would have no information about it. Thus ends the first story of the Mighty Thor. For much of my knowledge about Mark Miller, I've been relying on a staggering 85-part essay about him by comics critic Colin Smith. Among the many cogent points Smith makes about Miller's approach to the struggle between good and evil, one in particular struck me in regards to this episode, because it closely aligns with a point political philosopher Michael Parenti makes in his book, Make Believe Media, The Politics of Entertainment. In 99% of science fiction movies, and indeed almost all films that come out of the Hollywood bulk entertainment slurry production line, the masses being victimized by whatever malevolent antagonist du jour are never allowed to fight back in anything more organized than in spontaneous working groups. I genuinely can't think of a science fiction or fantasy movie I've seen in which an entire community organizes militantly and defends itself from an invading force without relying on, quote, the heroes to swoop in and actually save the day. Miller's writing in no way bucks this trend. And obviously, neither do any other writer's superhero stories, by the defining features of the genre. But most of these stories aren't referred to as radical in their politics. Miller's are. And that's sort of the rub, right? A superficial understanding of left-wing politics reinforced by a superficial presentation of them. There are, of course, 
times when a shallow representation is all you need. The issue opens with a full-page close-up of two faces in very strange positions. We're in media res, which is fancy talk for the writer forgot to start the scene at the beginning. And we see Tony Stark floating behind Shannon Elizabeth. Boy, this is 2002, isn't it? Who happens to be our ultimate celebrity sighting number seven. He's holding what is apparently a Capri Sun pouch that had just previously been full of Bollinger 69, a high-class champagne. The pair of them are in Stark International branded astronaut uniforms, and it's clear that they're up in space. They're both looking directly at the reader, and for this time at least, it's actually appropriate to say they're looking at the camera. The picture is stylized with old-school CRT TV scan lines and emblazoned with a chyron of the word live down in the corner of the broadcast. Tony asks someone presumably at the other end of the feed, Sorry, Larry, could you repeat the question? Then he brags about being up in the space station with Champagne and Shannon Elizabeth. The next page is primarily black ink, with four panels also lined with CRT artifacts, cutting back and forth between Larry King, ultimate celebrity sighting number eight, and the space station as they descend on the page. Next to each is the dialogue being spoken by whoever's on screen at the time. The nature of this conversation is an increasing rarity these days, basically an endangered species. There's a lot to unpack here, so buckle in. Larry King replies to Tony, sure, I was wondering if being CEO of Stark International might interfere with your Iron Man duties in The Ultimates. But I think you already answered my question, Tony. I mean, here you are after just a month after the team's official launch, and you've been missing for two weeks on that blasted space shuttle, for God's sake. Can you imagine literally any news anchor today talking to a billionaire like that? Maybe, maybe Chris Hayes, but it would be even more insipid and toothless than this conversation is going to prove to be. And it would have to be opposite a billionaire who had zero stake in his network. In a beautifully encapsulating moment, even just this very first line of criticism from the press highlights exactly what is wrong with this entire book. Larry King here is criticizing Stark for not being militaristic enough. The idea that the Ultimates may not have a right to exist in the first place is, as we'll soon see, only narrowly brought up. The whole argument operates under a premise that is never legitimately interrogated. All proceeding arguments are basically inconsequential from here on out. Tony justifies his absence by responding that the shuttle vacation was a birthday present for Shannon Elizabeth that had been planned for ages ago. And then he includes the groan-worthy addition of, and despite what they say in the papers, I don't like disappointing beautiful actresses. Very mature. Like all men, only worse. He continues in an actually quite worrisome manner. He says he's been working 18-hour days since he was 10 years old, and that he gets very bored when he's not doing 15 things at once. And I have to say, that's not admirable. That's pathological at best, and child abuse at worst. Obviously, Tony Stark has featured heavily in each episode so far, even the first one, to a degree. But I haven't taken the post-podcast theme section to talk about him and his history yet. I'm saving it for later because there's a very specific reason that they keep highlighting just how truly out-of-this-world intelligent the ultimate version of Iron Man actually is. Rest assured, it's so dumb that it got trashed by Miller himself later. Although I could continue at length about how Tony represents the capitalist hustle culture, as we're calling it now, it's more important that we spend time with Larry King's criticism. Tonight on Collective Action Comics Live, we've got Larry King on the chopping block. He's in the studio with us now. First of all, 
it's clear that Miller had not watched much Larry King at the time of writing. And, you know, I guess this is the ultimate universe, so you can expect a few dissonances between its more mundane aspects and our universes. In our universe, Larry King was a favorite interviewer of political elites with some potentially contentious agendas because of his notoriously soft balls. I mean, the questions he lobbed at them were almost laughable. I found a few interviews he did with both Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and Secretary of State Colin Powell just a few months after the 9-11 attacks. In his interview with Powell, one day after the New York Times published an article with some of the first stirrings of war in Iraq, King opened with, quote, I wanted to know if the Secretary of State enjoyed being Secretary of State. He then welcomed Powell to engage in some theatrically humble jingoism, in which Powell claimed that he, as a warrior, particularly hated war. I'll remind you that this was the man who, little more than two years later, would be giving one of the most famous, most misleading, and most famously misleading speeches to the UN to justify support for the supreme war crime of the last 50 years, the U.S.'s invasion of Iraq. The interview doesn't get any tougher, let me tell you. At one point, King actually almost ribs Powell for not, quote, going in there and taking out Saddam Hussein in the Gulf War of the early 90s. In his interview with Rumsfeld five months later, King never once pushes back on any of Mr. Secretary's answers on how the war in Afghanistan is going. Not one time. He even takes time in the interview to convince Rumsfeld, rhetorically at least, that the upcoming war in Iraq was inevitable. Inevitable! Anyway, Ultimate Larry King is quite combative. He asks several almost perfectly reasonable questions, beginning with why the fuck is the government spending all these billions upon billions of dollars on this flashy defense initiative when there's only been one supervillain attack in the history of the world? What if another one doesn't happen? Tony tells him that's like questioning medical insurance because you don't expect to get sick. Then, King asks about all the accusations that Tony is using his media empire to fearmonger over the idea of supervillains and use the panic to justify these absurd defense contracts. And this one is particularly damning and a very good question to be asking. Since 1898, beginning with the exaggerated, nationalistic reporting of multiple Hearst publications, U.S. corporate media has been not only a cheerleader for U.S. military intervention in world affairs, but has indeed been a major force for causing and justifying it. Where King's criticism here fails is in its narrowness. Of course, Stark International could be hoodwinking the U.S. government into giving it all these contracts, but in the real world, it wouldn't have to. As I've driven home many times, and will do so many more, the U.S. is a bourgeois state. It is a government run by and for the owning class, the capital class. This means business owners and those with vested interests in the bottom lines of those businesses. Empire and expansion are integral to the continued well-being of the capital class due to the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. It's all very scientific, and I'd recommend some Marx and some Lenin for the full story. The spark notes are this. The government looks out for business interests, and war is very good for certain businesses. King continues to nail Tony to the wall by calling him out for the program's failure to produce a working super-soldier serum 
and for the difficulty the team has been having recruiting people. Apparently. That's literally never brought up anywhere else. Tony tells him they're working on recruiting Thor, which is an ironic response since the one character Tony mentions trying to recruit is the one character even remotely reticent to join. He then mentions on air that the program is disappointed with Banner's failed attempts to recreate the serum. And, of course, as we see in the bottom panel, a wretched and pitiful Banner has his television tuned to this exact interview. As an aside, the darker palette of this one panel does a great job expressing Banner's depression and displeasure. Credit where it's due and all that. Okay, whew, we're finally now on page four of the issue. I told you that was going to be a long and bumpy ride, so here's something nice. This next scene is actually pretty sparse on things to criticize. Captain America and the Wasp, or rather, Steve Rogers and Jan Pym, are just getting back from shopping for a new wardrobe for the old soldier. Steve is worried that Hank will be jealous that he and Jan are spending time together. And the way he phrases it definitely feels like it's coming from a perspective that Jan belongs to Hank which I actually think was pretty good writing on Miller's part. Again, credit where it's due, since Steve is from a less woke era. The two have a little fun back and forth as they mosey back to Steve's apartment. It's hard to classify it as flirting, but there seems to be at least a budding friendship. We learn from this conversation that Steve still hasn't seen Gail, but she might be joining him and Bucky for a beer later. And I just think that's nice. There's a lot of niceness in this scene. That is, until Jan starts critiquing Steve's choice of neighborhood. At the bottom of several flights of stairs covered in graffiti, she mentions that Steve could afford a more upscale place to live with his ultimate's salary. And I'm sure he could. He's against this out of principle, which I respect. But this is just an opportunity to have the pair of them find Steve's apartment broken into, and all the old stuff he'd worked so hard to reaccumulate stolen. In all, this scene serves two purposes. Lay the brickwork for certain interpersonal events that happen a few issues down the road, and cynically use the results of decades of the very austerity politics Miller claims to despise to show that Captain America isn't used to the modern world. Of course, this in no way changes Cap's devotion to the United States nor the institutions whose policies of deliberate impoverishment led directly to all his shit getting lifted while he was out. Again and again, we are presented with a very shallow, surface-level critique of the world. The word capitalism doesn't appear once in the entire series, despite it being the right-wing economic system and Miller ostensibly being against the right wing. Instead of being between two people with a potentially budding relationship, the next scene is an annoyed, windswept conversation between two ex-lovers. It's probably best described as tense. Bruce Banner and his separated wife Betty Ross are dressed to kill on the flight deck of the Triskelion, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s amphibious flying fortress not literally dressed to kill. I mean that in the stylish way, not the superhero way. Anyway, they're clearly overdressed for standard duty, and Betty is startled by Steve's stolen stuff. Mm -hmm. She asks Bruce if he thinks it was the Arabs or the Chinese, and the way Betty is being written in this universe, I 100% would not be surprised if she pronounced it Arabs. 
And honestly, it would be way cooler if it were the Chinese, because then it would be in the service of communism rather than out of capitalist-driven necessity. But alas. Also, the United States invaded Afghanistan seven months prior to the release of this comic. But the invasion of Iraq was still 11 months away. So while Betty was probably just lumping together everyone from the Middle East, she was more than likely thinking mainly of Afghanistan. But here's the thing. People from Afghanistan aren't Arabic. Why? Because Afghanistan isn't on the Arabian Peninsula. It isn't anywhere near the Arabian Peninsula, ya goof. At its absolute closest, and we're talking a nearly unreasonable reading of closest, Afghanistan is about 360 miles from the Musandam Peninsula, an area northeast of Dubai. Anyway, Betty the Racist is cut off by Bruce the Warmonger. He clues her in that it was probably just some dumb kids. He explains that Cap is heading over to find them and kick their butts. And he empathizes with Steve, noting how long it must have taken the old guy to collect so many of the things he once had. Betty shares little of his sympathy. The Ultimates are supposed to be engaging in a televised training exercise right now, and apparently no one has shown up. No one except Giant Man. And he's hesitant to pick up one of the fighter jets for the photo op because they look heavy and he doesn't want to hurt his back. Betty, in her apparently infinite compassion, lashes out at Bruce that she doesn't understand how he's not losing his mind after being demoted and after failing with his super soldier serum research. Now, this doesn't make sense to me since he was demoted because he failed, but I'm not going to pick apart every single piece of nonsense in this book. That way, madness lies. Betty then obliquely mentions that Hawkeye was supposed to be there for the shoot. But we'll get to him and the Black Widow later. Turns out he's on vacation right now. Betty storms off as she accuses Bruce of making her look like an idiot and tells him to make sure that he and Fury successfully recruit Thor tonight or she's going to divorce him. Women really do get the best treatment in comics, don't they? Listen, it's been a comic-heavy episode so far. Usually, the balance I strike between real-world affairs and the story recap is, let's call it chunky. Section of terrible comic here, section of depressing real-world analog there, it balances out, but in a stark way. This particular issue, though, is so absolutely laden with meaty, meaty lines that it's forcing me to blur the edges a bit here. Hopefully, you can forgive this with this coming scene. We have a full page with no dialogue, thank God. It's the closest thing I get to sleep when it comes to this podcast. Furies and Banner's helicopter lands next to some sort of scruffy bonfire in Norway, and the two of them get out and approach the partiers. They find Thor lounged on the ground, his back against a car door, idly cradling a beer that I'm sure is deliberately positioned to show us M-I-L-L on it. How droll, Mark and Brian. How droll. Fury accuses Thor of not answering his phone calls. And Thor retorts that it's because he's not interested. He then expresses that he hopes Fury isn't there to arrest him for his participation in the world trade protests. He assures Fury that the media had misrepresented the protests and that they were completely peaceful. And this is totally true. The 1999 WTO protests, also ominously referred to now as the Battle of Seattle, represent a cogent example of the role and function of the police and their evolving relationship to imperialism. Although it may not be readily apparent, we can draw many direct lines between police in the United States and the country's imperial project abroad. Think about it like this. Capitalism relies on profit, which comes from underpaid labor. Profit requires a growing surplus of production because profit inevitably falls over time. 
Enough of the surplus production must be sold at enough of a markup to offset the costs of making it. As with all other industries, this surplus of production can be found in the manufacture and sale of weapons. Bogus justifications are conjured to use these weapons for invading and privatizing resource-rich nations. And as a bonus, the U.S. now gets to control the economies of the nations they destroyed. The rest of these weapons, the ones that weren't provided to the armed forces as needed, are either sold to other governments, with the understanding that they'll be used against local resistance to U.S. hegemony, or on the black market. Or they're handed to local police departments here in the U.S. via the 1033 program. Per the government's own documentation, quote, the U.S. Department of Defense 1033 program permits the Secretary of Defense to transfer excess supplies and equipment to state and local law enforcement agencies. This is how our police have come to so closely resemble our armed forces, which is fitting because they both fulfill the same function, destroy any and all threats to capital's control of the economy, of the distribution and use of power. Nowhere was this more readily apparent than at the battle for Seattle. What's the WTO all about? It's all about greed. It's all about, look at these kids up here. They got a sign up that says, they'll trade our future. For these young kids in the street today, it's about their future being traded off by corporations who frankly don't give a shit what happens to them. Protesters were there to express their concerns over the truly evil policies of the World Trade Organization, one of the three governing bodies of this so-called international free trade, along with the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. As an article by Gene Johnson in the Borneo Bulletin puts it, quote, an array of issues brought tens of thousands of protesters to Seattle 20 years ago on a Sunday with one unifying theme. Concern that the World Trade Organization, a then little known body charged with regulating international trade, threatened them all. The police response to the protests was swift and brutal. And while most media outlets claimed that the tear gas pepper spray, and rubber bullets were used against black bloc anarchists destroying private property elsewhere in the city. This simply isn't true, just as Thor said. Nor does it fit the profile of what we know police to be used for. The police went where the real damage was being done, to the protests outside the WTO ministerial meeting that were shutting down downtown Seattle and impeding the decision-making processes of the international bankers and industrialists. It's no wonder that Thor would have participated in these protests. Everything he says in this coming conversation rocks. Fury assures him that he won't be arrested. Thor then concludes that that must mean Fury is there for the, quote, tempting offer to cut my hair and join the United States Marines. Banner steps in to rebuke Thor by claiming the Ultimates isn't an army. They're just there to do things the army can't do, solve post-human problems the army can't handle. But considering that in the real world, the US Army in no way protects the United States, saying that the Ultimates are an expansion of the army's capabilities isn't exactly a rebuttal to Thor's skepticism. And again, Thor counters with the very good take that the Ultimates are all just thugs in uniform protecting a corrupt status quo. That's exactly what the Ultimates are, regardless of who they defend the US against. I mean, definitionally. Thor then dismisses Fury and Banner and reiterates that he has no interest in serving a military industrial complex that engineers wars and murders innocents. And those are his words, not mine. Well, that's my boy. He continues berating the pair by predicting that while their reasoning may be supervillains now, 
it'll soon be oil and free trade. And here's where the scene goes off the rails. Banner cuts Thor off and exclaims that he doesn't understand how anyone could take Thor seriously given his claims of godhood and his very public mental breakdown and institutionalization. He then mentions that Thor has been making good money off lecture tours and trashy self-help books. But to no one's surprise, this isn't actually a criticism, or at least it's not the point of Banner's harsh words. Again, the word capitalism never once appears in this book. The ever-petty Dr. Banner pokes his finger at a shield-branded file folder he's carrying and tells Thor that he has all of Thor's secrets right there. And I have to stop for a second and go a little bit off script because I forgot to put this in. All this is doing is casting doubt on the very real things that Thor is saying to these fictional people. Thor is absolutely correct, and casting aspersions upon his sanity is doing nothing more than undercutting his arguments in real life. And again, this just plays into exactly what we've been talking about this entire episode. Thor is merely a pale shade of a leftist. And not only that, but this pale shade of a leftist is then painted as potentially crazy. This is in no way a radically left book. It is not a legitimate criticism of all of these right-wing tropes. It's purported to criticize. Unperturbed, Thor taps his brow knowingly and reveals to Banner that he's on to Banner's secrets, too. He asks if Banner has told Betty that he cries himself to sleep every night. Or is Banner too busy to do so because he's always fantasizing about hurting Hank Pym for taking his job? Before Banner can recover from this absolute onslaught, this rhetorical equivalent of the people's elbow, Thor summons a storm and calls down a massive bolt of lightning right then and there. Now drenched in the downpour, Fury stoically refers to Thor's infamous 60 Minutes interview, in which Thor claimed he was here to save the world. Thor says that, yes, he is here to save the world. From people like Fury. And that rocks. Too bad it proves to be utter horseshit. Some time passes after Fury and Banner leave Thor in Norway to continue his campaign of being objectively correct. Back at the Triskelion, a few of the crew are relaxing in a break room and just shooting the breeze. And let me tell you, this breeze is about to sweep in a slew of ultimate celebrity sightings. Janet mentions the failure to recruit Thor or to produce a working super soldier serum. She believes that the only thing keeping the team from being canned is the merchandising deal Tony Stark bragged about two issues ago. This leads Fury to reveal that the team has been optioned for a movie. It's almost like that's what Miller was angling for from the start. I'm going to California. I want to try my luck in Hollywood. This sparks the interest of the other two in the room, Captain America and Hank Pym. The group then begins to hypothetically cast who all would play whom in a movie adaptation, with Nick Fury opening up the floor by casting Brad Pitt as Captain America, and that's number nine. Jan agrees with him and asks who'd play Nick. Fury, of course, says Mr. Samuel L. Jackson, and that's not up for debate. There's number 10. Apparently, having had more time to think about this, has given Fury the edge here because he continues unprompted and casts Johnny Depp as Tony Stark. Remember that at the time this comic was written, Robert Downey Jr. was at the height of his very public battle with drugs, which I guess makes Fury's crack about him in the previous issue pretty offensive, so uh, you'll have to go look that one up for yourself. Anyway, that's UCS number 11. Hank, now intrigued, asks Fury who'd play Giant Man. Without hesitation, Fury names Matthew McConaughey, number 12. Jan eagerly requests her own doppelganger and is understandably put out when Fury produces Lucy Liu. Jan is inclined to believe that Fury only cast Liu because both she and Jan are Asian women since they don't even look alike. And that's the 13th sighting, but by no means the last. 
Now, I deliberately haven't mentioned that Jan is Asian until now, because I straight up didn't notice until this conversation when I was first reading the comic. It's been brought to my attention that the book's artist Brian Hitch, for all his talent for stark establishing shots and realistic camera angles, has had problems drawing people of color. And I believe it. Recently, some fans were making fun of the haircut Hitch gave Calvin Ellis, a black alternate universe Superman, on the cover of the DC book Infinite Frontier number one. Hitch on Twitter told them, you lot can fuck right off. Now, this is hardly a survey, and there isn't much out there about Hitch, really at all, beyond the boilerplate praise for a professional. Anyway, I, I really couldn't tell, but we're moving right along. Jan asks who her backup might be, Bruce Lee? So that gives us ultimate celebrity sighting number 14. The group then brainstorm who might portray Bruce Banner. Jan thinks Hank is about to say Woody Allen, and that's 15. But then Fury cuts her off and says, the mouse that Gina Davis adopted, Stuart Little, and that's 16. Gina Davis, not Stuart Little. But before Hank can finish his thought, Banner walks in and catches the conversation. He storms right off just before Hank concludes that he was going to say Steve Buscemi, which brings us up to a whopping 17 ultimate celebrity sightings in just the first four issues. And we're not done yet. Cut to one of the worst places on Earth. A hell of exposure and surveillance, poverty and authoritarian violence, where the bright light of forces meaning to bend you to their will burned the eyes. Where rain washes human excrement down the street, sweeping it past all the locked doors of buildings owned by criminals living off government fat. Buildings that could have warmed and welcomed the purposefully immiserated. Times Square. I don't feel bad for Bruce, even after taking that massive L from Thor in Norway. And if everything he's said and done up to now hasn't convinced you that he's not worth your pity either, what he's about to do will. He's wet and shivering in a phone booth under the glaring LED signs. And he's calling Betty to tell her something very important. She tries to brush him off because she's having dinner with Freddie Prince Jr. right then. Ultimate celebrity sighting number 18. They're about to talk about him playing Iron Man in the coming movie, as well as getting Freddy in on testing the super soldier serum. She jokes that Freddy Prince Jr. wants to be a superhero as badly as Nicolas Cage does. And that's 19. Bruce tells her to shut up and rushes to explain that she's in major danger. He's just mixed the super soldier serum together with some of Captain America's blood and he's injected it directly into the cephalic vein in his anti-orbital forza. Which must be an ultimate universe thing, because in the real world, the words are antorbital and fossa, and put together, they mean a depression in the skull just in front of the eyes. And only dinosaurs that used to have big-ass openings in their faces had them. And unless folks in the Ultimate Universe are freakish archosaur people that have an extra dip somewhere on their skulls, there's no such thing as an antorbital fossa, let alone an antiorbital forsa. The fact that Banner mentions the cephalic vein tells me, a licensed medical practitioner of the last 15 minutes, that Miller probably meant anticubital fossa, which is just the crook of your arm. He was probably too busy riding the high of being able to sneak in the word phallic to care much about accuracy. Anyway, Banner's done gone and shot himself up with Hulk juice. He tells Betty that he rationalized it by attempting to turn himself into something the team could unite over to defeat in order to not lose their funding. And believe you me, we're gonna talk about that in the next two episodes. But then he admits to her just before collapsing, 
that it was simply because he missed being big. Which probably doesn't have anything to do with Miller shoehorning in a word with phallic in it, but hey, who can ever know? On the way to the hospital, Banner transforms into the Hulk, destroys the ambulance that some well-meaning stranger called for him, and screams out into the night, Hulk want Freddie Prince Jr. Which is actually kind of funny if you just let it wash over you like a warm, pedestrian bubble bath. Cut to the Ultimates finally suiting up to actually go do something a hundred or so pages in. And once more, our final page is mostly Captain America. But this time, it's a little different. He's backed up by Iron Man, Giant Man, and the Wasp looking like she's just stepped out of a direct-to-VHS Matrix ripoff. So now, we've got the perfect skin-deep tableau of the jingoist, the billionaire, the compensating scientist, and a woman with some sick-ass sunglasses all thrown together by the U.S. military and looking, for all the world, like they're about to save each and every one of us. Greetings once again, faithful listeners. Have you been practicing your revolutionary optimism? We should have. For instance, it's revolutionary how optimistic we are that our beloved Bud will return to us soon. Have literally any of you heard from him? All we're getting are strange missives beeped to us in a code our lab team has only half cracked. They did a bang-up job on the important half, though. This week, we'd like to thank Ryan McKenzie for becoming a new supporter. And we'd like to thank Comrade Crap Factory for increasing their support from supervillain casualty to odd bystander. <sighs> Not to cut our time together short, but you'll have to excuse me. We have a tour of students from our local school system touring the station today. And someone who's in a lot of trouble has left behind a mess of books and notes and scribblings. While I storm through the building looking for the culprit, why not email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com? Then follow the show on Instagram at collectiveactioncomics or on Twitter at CAComicsPod. That's comics with an X. And, as always, tune in in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of Collective, Collective Action, Action Comics! Comics.